You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Turn your Bible to a book of the Bible called Jonah. We're going to start uh, a journey today through the book of Jonah. It's a short little book. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's back in the Old Testament, kind of near the end of the Old Testament, if that helps you find it. Um, but it's just four chapters long. We're going to go through it in about five weeks. So we took two years to go through John. We'll get through this in less than a month and a half. So uh, that, that is a mercy maybe to some of you who like moving through books quicker. Uh, but uh, there's much to, to learn from this book. And I think much that the Lord uh, will say to us through it as we open it up today and in the weeks ahead. Uh, but as, as you're finding that, I was wondering if you've had the experience like me of ever been being rudely awakened, literally, physically. If you've had that experience where somebody, for whatever reason, has either needed to or maybe they just did it as a joke to you or maybe there was an emergency uh, that you needed to know about in the middle of the night and somebody rudely awakens you from your sleep. Maybe some of you that happened today, if you were sleeping in or something like that, uh, that you were rudely awakened. Uh, Because we're going to see a rude awakening on various levels for Jonah as we start this story here in just a few minutes. But I was thinking of a time, uh, an experience I had during college, once where I was rudely awakened, and then it was a tradition our our, uh, dorm, our floor would do, where I was the awaker, the waker-upper of these other guys in the years to come. But the tradition was this, and this would probably not fly in today's day and age. It's not hazing or anything like that, lest you think that. But what we would do really early on in the school year, one of the first couple weekends of the school year every year, Uh, We would pick a night, all the upperclassmen would pick a night on a weekend, and we would wait, we would stay up really late, even way later than uh, college students typically would, and we would wait till all the freshmen had gone to sleep, um, that they had been asleep for quite a while, make sure they were actually asleep and resting in their room, and then all in a coordinated effort, uh, us upperclassmen would take whatever we could find that was loud, like pots and pans if we had those around the dorm for some reason, or other musical instruments, or whatever things we could do that would just be loud as we could be. And we would go into any room that had a freshman in it, and we would wake them up. Like, we would not let them just stay in their bed. We would wake them up, and they'd be kind of bleary-eyed, getting out of bed or falling out of their bed, uh, whatever the means necessary. But we would take them then outside. Uh, we're not tying them up any weird things like this, okay? We'd take them outside, and we had a couple either trucks or vans uh, that were there, and then it's the middle of the night. We would load them in there, and we would drive around. We were in the middle of the country. We would just drive around on roads, so they got, I mean, they had only been in our town for like a week, uh, so they didn't know where we're going, uh, but they're getting kind of confused, and as they are finally awake, they're kind of wondering, what is going on? (laughs) What are these guys doing? Uh, Just wondering where this is headed. But what we would do, uh, and I was the recipient of this once and then the orchestrator of it another couple times, we would take them to this place where we had set up a bonfire. Uh, Then we would have seats for them around the fire for all the freshmen, and then all the upperclassmen would be there. And to alleviate their fears really quickly, we would let them know we're not bringing them there to haze them or to make fun of them or to harm them in any ways, but we wanted to have them to have a memorable experience because we wanted to tell them and communicate to them how much we loved them. 
and our desire to serve them that year, our desire to get to know them, our desire to integrate them into the life of our community. Uh, we would re- read from the Word together. We would sing together. Uh, we would uh, pray for them. We would even give them little nicknames that would often stick for the rest of their time in college. But it was a way for us to show them that we loved them. It, it was a gracious thing. It was a kind thing to do that didn't start that way in their mind. They just know, I'm getting woken up in the middle of the night by these strangers who I don't even know. Um, but we would take them there and it was what began as a rude awakening and their experience became a gracious awakening it it was a a kind thing that every single one of them would look back on with fondness uh, that they would look forward to the next year not to harm but to help and to encourage the freshmen who would come behind them and today as we start the book of Jonah as we start into this story that many of you may be familiar with uh, we're going to see that God quite literally awakens Jonah as he's sleeping we're going to see that he, ha- he makes sure that he's awakened physically in the middle of this storm. But also we see that he's starting to awake him in his heart. He's starting to awaken him from a, a spiritual sleep that seems to have come upon him that he willingly entered into. But we're going to see that though it's rude, though it's firm, though it's forceful, and might have not felt like there's any mercy mixed in, that God was actually waking him up in a merciful way. God was waking him up in a kind way. And so I want to read for you. We're just going to start in the first six verses today, and then the following weeks we'll move at a a faster clip. But I want us to to read through the first six verses of Jonah chapter 1 this morning, and that's where we'll pause, and then we'll work our way back through this familiar story to many of us. So the book of Jonah starts like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. We'll pause there. But this is the word of God, and I'm confident that he will speak to us today through it. I'll summarize uh, this beginning part of the book and what I think the Lord would want to communicate to us through it today is this. I would say this, that rude awakenings can be merciful gifts from God to call us to repentance. Rude awakenings can actually be merciful gifts from God to call us to repentance. We're going to look in, in three parts here at this story. I, I'm going to call them these the backstory, the backslide, and the backstop. But I'll, I'll tell you those as we go the backstory, backslide, and the backstop. 
I wanted to share a little bit of what I would call the back story first, because we're jumping in, diving in, pun intended, into the book of Jonah. Uh, in the, some, it could feel like it's in the middle of nowhere. We have no context, really. Maybe we've heard this story before. Maybe we had our mom or grandma or some teacher tell us it when we were little, but maybe we've never even taken the time to actually read it in the Bible. Uh, and you may wonder what is going on here. But this book of the Bible is unique in a few different ways. One way that it's unique, even from the other prophets that are right around it at the end of the old testament is that it's actually written as a story it's written as a narrative every other one of the minor prophets that we have right around here is these collections of sayings these collections of messages that these prophets gave to the people god told them to give them to but jonah's a story it's a narrative it's four chapters long there's characters there's ups and downs there's twists and turns within it so it's unique in that it has characters and you see who the main characters are in the first two verses like any typical story you see who the main characters are right up front the first two verses start this way it says that the word of the lord came to jonah the son of amittai saying arise go to nineveh that great city and so you see that the three main characters if you want to call them that are the lord jonah and then the ninevites the people of the city of Nineveh. So I wanted to make sure we know who we're dealing with here as we get into this story, who the Lord is, who Jonah is, who the Ninevites are. God, that is called the Lord here, is the main actor in this whole story. It's not a fish. It's not uh, even Jonah himself, but the Lord is the main actor in this story. There is a man named G. Campbell Morgan who said about the book of Jonah that men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. That men have looked so hard at the great fish, they've failed to see the great God. But it's God who's the primary actor in this story. If you know the story, he's the one we see here who calls Jonah. He's the one you saw in verse 4 that hurls the great wind upon the sea. He's the one that sends the fish that so many people are obsessed with that only has a couple verses in this story. He's the one who tells the fish to throw Jonah up back on the shore. He is the one who tells Jonah again to go back to Nineveh. He's the one who changes the hearts of the Ninevites. He is the one who, in in chapter 4, provides this plant that gives shade to Jonah. He's the one who makes it wither. He's the one who acts. He's the one who's directing this whole story. It is God. And we're going to see one important thing here to note about God, about the Lord, is that at this point in time in particular, but he has a special love for the people of Israel, of who Jonah is part. He has a special love for them. He has worked and worked and worked in the history of them as a people up to this point in time where we find ourselves, where he has saved them out of out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. He, he has provided kings for them. He's, he's been, had them build his temple. He's come and lived amongst them. And he has a special love for the people of Israel, who Jonah is part of, that we're going to see factor in significantly into this story. So that's the Lord. But the Lord comes to Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai. He's the second biggest, second most important character in the story. And we, to be honest, know very little about Jonah. That may surprise you, but outside of these four chapters, Jonah is mentioned before this only once. And it's in passing. It's back in the book. You can look it up later if you want. But it's in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, verse 25. 
one verse of the Bible. He's kind of a throwaway comment even in the middle of that verse. He's talked about there, Jonah, the son of Amittai, is spoken of as a prophet um, back then. But, but we know based on that, we know he was a real person. This isn't just some made-up story we're reading through this summer. He was a real man, a real prophet, who really was sent by God first to his people, and now he's going to be sent to the Ninevites. We know that he lived in the late 700s B.C. because of where he is mentioned there in the book of 2 Kings. So it was 750, 780 maybe years before Jesus ever even came. That's the time frame we're talking about. It was before Israel fell, while they still had kings, while they're still in the land. This was the time of Jonah. But I love this quote from an author named Eli Wiesel, I think is how you would say his name. He wrote this. He said, speaking of Jonah, he said, His file in Scripture is astonishingly meager. His name and the name of his father and nothing else. Where does he dwell? Mystery. Who are his friends, his teachers, his enemies? Impossible to ascertain. What was he doing until the incident that made him famous? What became of him afterwards? Nobody tells us. Without Nineveh, And its sinners, Jonah might not have figured in sacred Jewish history, and neither would the whale. And so I just thought it was a well-stated summary that we know very little about Jonah, especially apart from these four chapters we're going to read through this summer. But we learn a lot about him in these chapters, and we're going to start learning some today. So that's a little bit mostly what we don't know about Jonah. The third main character, as we get the backstory here before we move on, is the Ninevites, the people of the city of Nineveh. And verse 2, God, through the word, sends his word to Jonah and tells him, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, when Nineveh, many of you may have heard this, but when Nineveh is mentioned here, when it's called that great city by God, that is not a compliment. It's not like, hey, go to that great city, go to that wonderful city. It's talking about the size of it, that it's big, it's vast. It would have been one of the biggest cities in the world at that time. And God tells Jonah to go there. But this was not just any other city, not just any other big city. This was the capital city of the people we call the Assyrians. These would have been this huge, growing people group that was a threat to Israel that was becoming stronger, that was becoming more powerful, that someday was actually going to take them over and send them into exile, but that hasn't happened yet. And God's telling Jonah, go there. Go to that city. Like, go talk to them. Go cry out against them. And he says, even God is saying this, so we know it's true, that there is evil amongst them. He says that the evil of this city has come up before him. And so we know this isn't just some neutral city. It's not just some city that the Jewish people dislike. But even God is saying they're evil. God is saying that their evil is rising up before me. God is fully aware of it. That's not hidden to him. And he's just like, hey, Jonah, go talk to these people. God is fully aware of how evil they are. More aware than Jonah is, who lives far, far away and has probably just heard. God sees it and knows it. And he still sends Jonah, wants him to go to them. And he tells them, tells Jonah, go call out against it. Some prophets may have loved that. Like, hey, I get to go kind of decry these people and tear them down and tell them God's going to destroy you. But Jonah picked up on this, that God wanted him to call out against them, to, to warn them of destruction that was coming to them so that they would change, 
so that they would repent. Not just say, judgment's coming, undeniably it's coming to you, but he wanted Jonah to go and offer mercy, to warn them, to caution them that if you continue in disobedience, judgment is going to come. And we see even from the backstory of this book and from God's call to Jonah to go to the Ninevites, we see God's heart for the nations. We see God's heart for his enemies. We see God's heart for a people group that the Israelites wanted nothing to do with, that God's people wanted nothing to do with at that time. God's heart was for them. God wanted to send one of his prophets to warn them, to call them to repentance, to offer them and extend them mercy. We see God's heart even in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, not just in the New, but even in the Old Testament, we see God's heart for the nations. God's heart for people who do not know him, people who have rejected him. And he wants his people who he has, like the Israelites and like us today as believers, he wants us to have a heart for them as well. He doesn't want us to look upon those that we think of as evil or distant or they would never turn to God and just bite our tongues and walk away from them. But he wants us to go to them. He wants us as a church to send people to them. And that's why we do that. That's why we continue to do that. We, even this summer, we're going to be resending Jared and Megan Hood back to Tanzania. We're going to be sending Kyle and Val Downs to go do training, to do mission work amongst unreached people groups. We are a church that has had a heart for that, and we're going to see God's heart for it in Jonah, and we want it to continue to grow and grow and grow. That his heart for the nations becomes our heart for the nations. So that is a little bit of the backstory. There's far more to it, but that is uh, the start of the backstory. But as we get into this narrative, as we get into this story, the, the next phrase I would use to summarize what we start to see here is the backslide. The backslide. Not just the backstory, but the backslide. Because this book of the Bible is unique in the sense, one, we already said of being a story. It's, it's told as a narrative. But you probably picked up on this. It's also unique in the sense that This is a disobedient prophet. Every other prophet, when you read through them, I mean, you could do it later if you want. Look at how they start. Many of them start this very way that the word of the Lord came to this prophet, and then he he starts to speak. He starts to do what God told him to do, to say what God told him to say. But did you pick up that God comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. In verse 3, this is how the book starts. This is intended to be jolting. Like, what in the world? Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's how this book starts, is with this prophet disobeying God. This prophet saying, I hear you, I know what you want me to do, but I'm not doing it. And this is, this was, uh, he, he responds, this should supposed to be mind-boggling to us. He responds to God's word by defying it. Not by doing it, but by defying it. And it, the, the author here, it may have been Jonah, we don't know. It may have been someone else recounting his story for us. But the author summarizes Jonah's backsliding, his disobedience, by saying that he was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Did you catch that? That's said twice there in verse 3, that he rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to Joppa and gets on this boat to flee from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. That's what they're they're saying is, is the overarching banner of what he's doing here is trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah is no idiot, okay? He knows, I would say, full well that he cannot actually escape the presence of the Lord. 
He's not under any illusion, I think, that if I just get far enough out into the Mediterranean Sea that God won't see me and God, God will, he won't know where I am. I can kind of hide for him and duck under the clouds or whatever. And that he, He's not under any illusion of that. Jonah would have known that's impossible to do, to really flee actually from the presence of the Lord. But he is trying to flee from God's rule, trying to flee from God's authority, trying to flee when he's talking about his presence, it's his ruling presence, his governing presence, his dictating to Jonah of what he wants him to do. That is what Jonah is seeking to evade. That's what he's seeking to cast off and say, I've done it. I've done a lot for you, God, but I'm not doing this. I will not do this. This, we have a map. I think you'll be able to see this. I wanted you to see, because it's kind of quite comical, if it wasn't so awful, of what Jonah's actually trying to do here. Okay, So Jonah would have probably been based around here, like around Samaria. He worked in the northern part of the uh, land of Israel. And God calls him to go over. We talked about the Assyrians, this big group of people. He calls him to go to their capital. That would have been a long trip, okay, over land to go to Nineveh. That's where he's telling him, that's that awful place that I've seen the evil rising up for me. Go there. We don't know exactly where uh, Jonah was trying to go, but do you see this right here? It says Tarshish is somewhere over here. what we believe, the best accounts we can tell is that this is the Mediterranean Sea, and somewhere far over even west of that map, somewhere in the northwest part of the Mediterranean Sea was a city called Tarshish. And so Jonah goes down from uh, Samaria to this coast city called Jaffa and gets on a boat to go as far west as he can, to go to the end of what would have been the known world to them. That's where Jonah's trying to go, literally the exact opposite way than God, that God told him to go. God told him to go on land to the east. He says, I'm going as far west as I can by boat. Okay, I, I love reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with my kids. And if any of you have ever read the story of Jonah in there, uh, I, one of the funniest lines in that story is that when they depict Jonah, he goes down to the boat, to the dock, and says, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. That's what he said. That's how they depict what he says. I just don't want to go there. Like, tell me however far away I can get from there. Take me there. And so he gets a a ticket to not Nineveh. But he's seeking to defy God. He's seeking this guy who has been obedient. He's seeking to cast off the rule of God. And I would want to say this to us, is that God sees your sin. Like, no matter how private you think it is, no matter how secret you think you can be in hiding your sin, your disobedience from God, you cannot flee the presence of God. You cannot do it. He sees you. And even if you're trying to cast off his reign, cast off his rule in your life, you cannot even do that. We're going to see that in this book, in this story, that there is nowhere you can hide from God. Jonah should have known this, right? Another clue we know that he would have known he can't escape. God just told him the evil of the Ninevites has risen up before me, right? He, he know, Jonah knows God sees. God, God knows all sin. He knows it. He sees it. He's aware of it, including mine and including yours. So I want no one in this room to live under any illusion that God doesn't see your sin, that God doesn't see your disobedience, even if nobody else does. God sees it. This is a striking start to the story because Jonah, the little bit we know of him from back in 2 Kings, we know 
he was an obedient prophet. He was spoken of positively there, even though it was in passing. He was spoken positively as, as relaying the word of the Lord. He's been obedient. He's probably been fruitful as a prophet. He's done what God's told him to do, but now he's defiant. Now he's disobedient. Now he's deliberately going against God. The same God he used to obey, the same God he used to be in touch with and sensitive to and obedient to, now he's defying him and he's doing it deliberately. He's going as far away from God's command as he can. I want us to pause and learn from that, that we are called as God's people to obey in the present. Not just to to bank on past obedience, not to say, I used to obey. I used to be really close with him. But God calls you and calls me to obey him in the present. He calls you to continue moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, obeying him. And to never rest on past years, past months, past decades of obedience to him. There's something, I don't know if it's just coincidence, but there have been several instances recently where there's been this thread running through some stories of, of older folks that I know, like, or that I've heard of at least by people I know, who have been faithful to the Lord, who've been obedient to him, who've been selfless to him, who have been active even in his word, even as ministers, but who have given in to temptation as they get older to disobey God, to just defy him and say, I know he calls me to this, but I'm going to do this. I know his word says this, but I don't want to do that, so I'm going to do this. And there, there's this strange temptation. I know that I, I will hopefully come to face it if the Lord gives me long enough life and if, if Jesus stays in heaven. But there's this strange temptation I've started to notice in people as we get older. This strange temptation for saints, for Christians, to feel looser with obedience the older they get. To think that sacrifice and diligence and hard work and selflessness, that is the hard work that younger people are called to do. And I've reached an age in my life where I can kind of do what I want, where I can, I can act the way I want. I can prioritize the things I want to prioritize. But le- learn from Jonah that just because you've obeyed in the past, just because you've sacrificed in the past, does not mean that God definitely doesn't allow you to disobey him and defy him. But he doesn't want you to coast in the, the older parts of life either. He wants you to continue day by day, year by year, be engaged in his work. So Jonah starts this backslide. He, he, he's been obedient. Now he's disobedient. As we go through the story, you see quite literally, I think the author did this on purpose, it's almost like there's this downward spiral of Jonah here. Did you notice how several times there's this language of him going down to this place, going down to this place? Look at it with me. If you, if you start in verse 3, it says he rose to flee. But then verse 3 says that he went down to Joppa. That would have been geographically down because it's getting closer to the Mediterranean Sea. But he goes, nonetheless, says he goes down to Joppa to find a ship. And he paid the fare, verse 3 says, and went down into it. And if you keep going down to the, in the story, uh, move your eyes to uh, verse 5. It says that as these sailors are casting off these uh, possessions on the ship, it says that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so there's quite literally, Jonah just keeps this descent going downward and downward and downward. He's gone down to Joppa, down to load the boat, down into the boat, and lay down on a bed in the boat. 
And this happens in our life at times where we start down a path of disobedience and we maybe didn't even intend to, but we go further down and further down and further down and further down and it becomes easier and easier and easier for us to keep taking steps of disobedience quite literally down away from what God has called us to. And I think probably in Jonah's heart, the very fact that he's asleep when there's this storm that is terrifying sailors, professional sailors, the, I think the fact that he's asleep in the middle of this is this sign that even physically he's just been hardened, he's become callous, he's become just stone cold towards the realities of life, and probably the conviction that God had had in his heart early on, that has just dissolved away. He's gotten further hardened in his sin, hardened in his disobedience, where he can sleep in the middle of a storm. And this can happen to us. Like These are ancient people. This is an ancient prophet, but this can happen to us. And maybe some of you are living in this now, where you've stepped down paths of disobedience, but you've gotten hardened and hardened and hardened in your heart towards the Lord. And the things that used to bother you for lesser things you would do no longer bother you. The, the, thing, the steps that you've taken, you could not have imagined doing years ago or months ago. But now you do it and you don't hardly even have a prick of the conscience. This can happen to us as we step down paths of disobedience. Our consciences can become seared to where we don't even care anymore. We, we've rejected the Spirit's work so often that, that we don't even feel His conviction at times. And we can care less and less even. Maybe there's some in this room like this. Care less and less about how our disobedience is hurting others. Did you note that? Jonah is the one that God is coming after in this boat, but this storm is affecting all of these sailors. And there's probably other boats around here too. This storm is coming and affecting everybody that's around him. And he's oblivious to it. He's asleep. And it's so common in our life that as we get hardened, as we step down paths of disobedience, we are leaving people in our wake. There's hurt and harm that's coming to people because of us, and we're just oblivious to it. And God would want us to be alert to that, to know and to see, have eyes to see as he opens your eyes and even gives you a little glimpse to see that you can harm others with your sin. Just because you lack a prick of conscience doesn't mean that God is endorsing what you're doing. I think sometimes we confuse God allowing us to do certain things with God endorsing us doing it. That, that Jonah may have been tempted to think, well, like I knew the word of the Lord came to me, to, to go to Nineveh, but I've taken these steps. I've paid the fare. I paid my money. I got on this boat. God hasn't stopped me yet. I'm asleep. I'm, I'm resting calmly. He may have thought that he was kind of in the clear, that God was not going to stop him. He may have even started to think, well, like maybe God is okay with me since he's kind of leaving me alone. Maybe God is okay with me doing this. He may have thought because he's sleeping well that night that, you know how people say, well, I, I sleep well. I, if, even if they're doing bad things, I can sleep well at night. I, I don't feel bad about what I'm doing. Maybe Jonah was saying stuff like that. But the fact that you sleep well means nothing about God's endorsement of your sin. The fact that you feel no conviction in you doesn't mean God feels no conviction about you. There's many times God allows us for whatever reason for us to go down paths, deep down paths, of disobedience and doesn't stop us. But I was thinking as an illustration, there, I went to Niagara Falls a long time ago, and there, it's beautiful, but imagine going over the falls. That would be terrifying. And I, it struck me just how smooth the river is. Fair, I mean, there's rocks as you get closer, but how smooth the river is and maybe even how pleasant it would be to go down it if you didn't know there's a waterfall at the end of it. 
where you would die and get crushed on the rocks. I, I imagine that in life often there's people who have gotten onto these dangerous paths, but they just look around and it's all pleasant and easy and smooth, and they forget God has told us that destruction is coming for this, that judgment is coming for this. And so Jonah needed to learn that just because he's allowed to sleep at night, just because God hasn't snapped the leash back on him yet, did not mean that God was okay with it. And we need to learn the same as well. Just because God allows me to do things in life doesn't mean that he endorses them. So why did Jonah do this? Like, why did he defy God? We're going to see this as the story progresses, but I I at least want us to think about this for a moment. Why did he backslide? Why did this obedient prophet become a disobedient prophet? There's a lot of reasons it could be. It could have been, I mean, put yourself in his shoes. It, It could have been that he was intimidated, right? I mean, this was a massive city that he was called to go as one person and cry out against it. That would be an intimidating task for anybody to consider. It could have been that he was afraid that, I mean, this was a a nation they were afraid could come crush their entire nation of Israel. And now he's going to go as one person. He could have been afraid. They had probably, people think, a hundred foot wall, uh, tall walls around their city. He could have imagined that I come to that gate trying to tell them to to, uh, stop disobeying God and they're going to drop something on my head or they're just going to torture me. He could have been afraid to go to them. He could have been confused maybe because at this point in time, God had often given prophets messages to say about other nations, but he had never, to my knowledge, sent people to other nations, especially to their capital city, to cry out against them. And so he could have been confused, like, why are you having me do that? Like, maybe I'm not hearing from God correctly about this. He could have had any number of reasons that might have been why he disobeyed. But I would tell you, we actually know why he disobeyed. We know why he disobeyed. And we'll see it when we get to chapter 4. But I wanted to give you a spoiler alert here. Jonah does eventually go to Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh do repent. And Jonah, after that, gets angry about it. And Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, essentially he says this to God. I knew you would do that. Like, I knew you would show mercy to them. I knew you would forgive them. I knew you would change them. And that's why I didn't want to go. Because they're awful. They hate you, God. Like, why would you want them uh, to be part of your people? Why would you want to show mercy to them? That's why he didn't want to go. That's why he went to Joppa. That's why he got into the boat. That's why he was fleeing, trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And we're going to return to this again and again in Jonah. But I want us to start this Sunday remembering this. That we must never let our position of privilege as one of God's people lead us to look down on people who are not. Lead us to think that they are so bad that God should never and would never show mercy to them. What if he said that about you? And what if whoever shared the gospel with you had said that about you? They had looked at you as an enemy of God. They had looked at you as maybe a, a helpless case in their eyes. And they had never told you the good news. You would not have been a recipient of God's mercy. But God showed mercy to you. He showed mercy to us, and he wants us to be people who want God's mercy to keep spreading and spreading and spreading, to never look down at our neighbors or coworkers or people of other religions or other ethnicities and look down upon them in a condescending way. But he wants us in mercy and compassion to go to them and to tell them about the loving God who is glad to forgive them if they'll trust in Christ. 
So we need to be learning the lesson that Jonah is seeking to be taught, uh, that God is seeking to teach Jonah here, to go to the nations, go to the enemies of God with the message of this Jesus. So we see the back story and the back slide. Um, but I, I was trying to think of another back word that has an S that starts after it, and it's baseball season, and I thought of the backstop. If you ever have played baseball, if you know anything about baseball, or just imagine if you don't, imagine watching a baseball game on TV, and you see the batter there and the catcher there. Uh, back behind them is, there's variations of it, but there's some sort of brick wall or padded wall, and there's some netting that's there. That is what's called the backstop in a baseball game. And the reason it's there is for a few reasons. One is to, if players make mistakes and just wing the ball right by the catcher who's sitting there, that it doesn't just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. It protects them from too bad of an error. <laughs> like it stops it. It limits how bad things could go for them. Um, but it also protects the fans that are there, right? If you've ever sat behind one of those, you know, it could, I know at least how terrifying <laughs> that can be. Even if you know the net's there, that this ball can come at you like 100 miles an hour. It's there to protect people from harm. And as we get into the end of our little section today, we see that God in some ways is acting like a backstop for Jonah, that he's protecting him from things getting even worse. And he's protecting, we're going to see, even the other people around Jonah from the harm that is coming from his mistakes, from his disobedience. We see that God in his mercy is stopping things from getting worse. So Jonah's in this boat, and verse 4 says that God hurls a great wind upon the sea, and that there was a mighty tempest on the sea. I I find it ironic, verse 3 ends that Jonah was trying to go away from the presence of the Lord, and verse 4 starts, the Lord hurled a great wind. So he he cannot get away. God sees him. He knows exactly where he is and causes a storm to come right at this boat, probably sequencing the waves to make it most affected right where Jonah is in that boat. The ship is breaking up or threatening to break up even. It's in the original, it's kind of even like personified, like this boat is like just about to crack, like it's cracking up. So there's boat that's about to break. There's these sailors that are terrified, these professional men who are out on the sea probably six days out of the week and a year on average. Uh, they are terrified even of this storm in particular. And they start trying to, to throw things overboard to make the ship lighter so that it can rock with the waves better. They're starting to even take spiritual attempts, spiritual stabs at trying to get this storm to stop that, that the author records for us that verse 5, that when they were afraid, they each cried out to his own gods. So there's people of different religions who are all just saying these prayers, crying out to their gods to ask if they would stop this storm. But no surprise to us that those don't work because those gods don't exist. So they're certainly not all-powerful. And this storm is headed, it's moving this boat, it's moving the men on it to a disastrous end if God doesn't intervene. And God is coming for Jonah. He is coming for him. There is no doubt about this as the story is told. But it's going to be to mercifully awaken him. Not to destroy him, not to crush him, but to mercifully awaken awaken him and it's going to be firm it's going to get worse the end of chapter one even than what we read today it's going to get worse chapter two but god is coming he's going to be firm with him to degrees we can't even imagine but he's going to be loving and merciful as he does 
interesting. God's kindness, as this story progresses, as they're throwing these things overboard, and Jonah is asleep, we know from verse 5, down on the inner part of the boat, the captain of the ship, this would have been some pagan guy, did not know the true Lord at all. The captain of the ship, for whatever reason, comes down, and this was probably not like a nice, pleasant, like, shoulder tap. Like, hey, man, you should wake up. We're trying to call out to our gods. Maybe you He's probably screaming at him, telling him, calling him a sleeper, saying, what are you doing down here? Like, get up. Like, get up on deck. Crawl out to your God. It is so ironic that this pagan is telling Jonah to do the right thing. Saying, get up. Call out to your God. And even this pagan knows enough in verse 6 to reference the God. Did you see that? He says, perhaps the God will give thought to us. He knows that amongst all these other gods, because their prayers aren't working, that there is one God who can. And he's telling Jonah, call out to your God. Maybe he's the one. Like maybe he's the one who can stop this, but he's doing it forcefully. And I think, if you, if you could imagine this, I think Jonah, as he heard even the very words that that, uh, that that captain used, is hearing from God. Did you notice even what the captain says? He says, arise and call out. Those are the exact things God had told Jonah to do. Arise and go to Nineveh and call out against them. And maybe it was like Jonah just is waking up on the, in the inside of that boat, maybe thinking he's in a nightmare, like he's been running away from God. He had heard God say, arise and call out. And now it's a different sounding voice, but he hears this captain saying, arise, get up, call out. And it's God mercifully awakening him. And he's going to move him up onto the, the aboard, or onto the deck of the ship. And we'll see next week how God ultimately resolves this. But if God had not woken, had this captain wake Jonah up, I think this would have led to a disastrous end. That's how everything is moving. But God in his mercy uses even this pagan captain to go wake Jonah up. And to start to, I think, lovingly shake him like, what are you doing? Do you think you can defy me? Do you think you can flee from me? You can't. Like I have a mission for you. I have something I'm calling you to do. That phrase that the captain says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. I think I I want to to, uh, speak to two categories of people really briefly here this morning, using even similar terms there. I think there may be some in this room this morning who, it's not even that you were ever really spiritually awake or ever really obedient to God. You have lived your whole life running away from you lived your whole life in disobedience to him and in defying him. You can't look back on a time in your life where you obeyed. You have been running and running and running and running from God. Even as you sit in rooms like this, you've been running from him. You cannot hide from him. You can't. Like he sees your sin. He's aware of them even more than you are. And I would want you to hear in the words that this captain says to Jonah. He says, perhaps this God will give thought to us if we cry out to him. I want you to know if you have been running from God your whole life, there is no perhaps about that. The, The word tells us that if we cry out to him, 
the one we've been running away from, the one we've been disobeying, if we cry out to him pleading for mercy through his son Jesus, there's no perhaps about it. He will forgive us. He will give us eternal life. He will make us his sons and daughters as we cry out to him. And I would call you to do that today. The God is willing to forgive you. He's willing to receive you no matter where you are out on the the, uh, sea of life, no matter how far you've drifted. He sees you now and is glad and willing to forgive you and to save you right where you are if you will call out to him. I was thinking of how Jonah descended and descended and descended deeper into disobedience, and maybe you've been living that way. You've just gone deeper and deeper and deeper, and you don't even feel it anymore. The disobedience doesn't even bother you anymore. But then my mind was going to the story, the true story of Jesus. This passage from Philippians 2 where it describes him as taking steps downwards and downwards and downwards. He is God the Son who lived in heaven for all eternity. And he willingly became a human being. He lowered himself, not in disobedience but in obedience, lowered himself to be a human and the Bible says that he lowered himself even more in being willing to be mistreated and even to take our sins upon himself on the cross. That he lowered himself even to the point of death on that cross in our place. That he was buried, that he was lowered even into the ground. It's all this voluntary, this obedient lowering of himself. But that God now has raised him up. God has spoken to him and told him to arise, never to lay down again, never to die again. And that Jesus has taken those steps downward. As you've gone down steps of disobedience, he has taken steps of obedience downward so that you could be forgiven of yours. So that that God could look at you in your lowest state that you walked into this morning and say, I am glad to forgive you because my son was put to death for those missteps, for those paths that you've taken, those disobedient mistakes that you've made, those willful choices you've made. I will forgive you because of him. And he will look at you with mercy and compassion and say, cry out to me. I am glad to pull you up. I am glad to save you. And he will and can do that even today if you will cry out to him. The second group I want to speak to briefly, and this will carry most of the message of Jonah, is the people in this room who have had times of obedience. Who you are believers. You You have put your trust in the Lord, but you have gotten to a place of disobedience. You've gotten down a path, maybe you're a few steps down it, or maybe you are years deep in it now and nobody knows about it. You've gotten into places of disobedience. But today, it may be, and I hope that it is for you, that God is telling you, no further. Just like he did to Jonah that day. You have gone this far, no more. Like, I see you and I am stopping you like a dog on a leash. Like you can pleasantly let it go and run and think it's okay. But when it comes to danger, the owner who loves it snaps it back and pulls on its neck. And it may hurt in the moment, but it is for its good and it is merciful to it. And that may be what God is doing to you today. And saying, you think this is pleasant and fun and good, but this is heading to destruction. I am stopping you. Stop. Arise and cry out to me. It may be financial things that you've been doing. It may be uh, physical harm or mistreatment that you've given to others. It may be manipulation of people. It may be sexual sin. It may be your speech that you've just gotten vile with. It may be gossiping. It may be any number of things that you have walked down paths of. But God today in mercy is saying, no more. Stop. 
It's like, what are you doing? Like, you sleeper, wake up. Like, I have more for you. I have better for you. Stop defying me. Stop disobeying me. One area I know God would want to speak us to, because it's the heart of this book, is our laziness and evangelism. Like, Jonah was defying God about taking the good news to people, saying, I'm not doing that. I am not doing that. I am not doing that. And there are many of us in this room who functionally say, I'm not doing that. I maybe used to. I used to be active in that. But God has a mission for his people to be involved in and taking the good news, extending mercy to people who haven't received it. And he wants us to be part. He wants us to be engaged in that work. So the question I would have for us today is how do we respond to God's awakening? Sometimes his rude awakening in our life. God's awakenings, if, if we are part of his people, are never fully rude. They are merciful. They are kind, and sometimes they hurt, sometimes they sting, but they are merciful to us, and he calls us to repentance. And he is glad to extend us forgiveness, and he is glad to empower us to be part of his work.